Glad you guys are here. My name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Acts 8. One thing's not really an announcement. It's just for your information. We're, um, we're looking at a new, a new space up the road. It's across the street from McCracken's and Lucky Draw Tattoo, if you know where that is, across from... Across from there, not in there. How many of y'all have tattoos? Raise your hand. See? It's like it's... A, don't be afraid. You, you got a big one right here. It's good. Huh? It is good. It has lots of meaning. Um... So anyway, we're looking at a space up there. This probably is not going to help y'all for our students across from the bar and the tattoo place. That's where we're going to put our kids. Uh, it's, it, and this probably doesn't help either. I think it used to be the jail and the police station. So that's where we're putting, that's where we're looking at for our students. It's uh, 6,400 square feet, 32 on the bottom, 32 on the top. We wouldn't do anything on the top. Um, it looks like it would cost too much to renovate. We don't really need that space, but it's all a package deal. So we're just looking at that. We're waiting to get a number back on a build-out. The landlord is seems to like us. So here for you, uh, I don't know him. I haven't met him. Bo, who was leading worship, has been dealing with him primarily. And when Bo called him about it, he said, Oh, I, I love your church. I broke down, and some people from your church pushed my car around the corner. So y'all's kindness, he gave us a break on rent. So... We're going to, we'll see, we haven't, you know, I, don't, I can't say God's given me a dream and said move into that space. We just keep our eyes open because space is such a limited commodity here on the square. And it, it, it came up, and so we're exploring. I, I don't know if we'll get it or not, but we're, the lights look green right now. If you have any input on that particularly, no, just in general, whether you're a parent of students or not, if you have any input, talk to Bo about that, and we'll just keep you posted. I don't imagine the rent we can afford based on what we have coming in every month and the build-out we're going to try to just pay for out of our savings. So there's not going to be any big capital push or anything like that. You're not going to have to pledge anything for us to, uh, for us to make that happen. So that's kind of where that is. I would say, like, if you're asking percentages, it's probably um, two-thirds yes, one-third no, kind of the way things are looking. And most of the no is just unknowns with what it would take to get in it. So if y'all have some strong thoughts or feelings or just some questions, direct all those to Bo. Okay, so last week we looked at the martyrdom of Stephen, first man to die for his faith, for the Christian faith. Uh, and that launch, and, and we looked at his trial. He has this long speech. He doesn't really defend himself. He's kind of defending the gospel. And we said when he was squeezed, what came out of him was the word in the Spirit, in about 50 verses, he quotes 10 Old Testament passages. The Bible is in him, and when he's pressured, that's what comes out of him. And also, we see he's falsely accused, he's stoned in the midst of that. He's saying, Father, forgive them. You see the fruit of the Spirit coming out of him. So when he's squeezed, what comes out of him is the Word and the Spirit. And we said, you know, for us, we're all going to be squeezed as well. What are the things that are going to come out of us? And in the moment of crisis or pressure, it's too late. You've got it or you don't at that point. So what does it look like for you to begin to make deposits now into your heart so when you are pressed, and you will be, the things that come out of you are good and righteous. So that was last week. This week we're going to look at just a handful of verses um, following Stephen's martyrdom. So chapter 8, verse 1, And Saul approved of their killing him. So Saul approved of the Sanhedrin killing Stephen. 
And on that day that Stephen was killed, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Uh, So Stephen's death is a catalyst for the first persecution, widespread persecution we see of the church. It's localized in Jerusalem, but it's not focused just on the apostles any longer. If you remember last week, we said that with Stephen, public opinion towards the church is starting to shift. Prior to him, even people who were not following Jesus held the gospel, held the apostles, held the church in high regard. But beginning with Stephen, because we said Stephen says the temple doesn't matter anymore. And he was getting in their kitchen. The temple was not just the center of their religious activity. It was also the basis for their economic activity. As a city. Jerusalem, in a lot of ways, was a sacrifice in the temple. They came to worship in the temple. And Stephen is saying, you don't have to do that anymore. It's not that important any longer. And so the people have now turned, it, not all, but the tide is turning against the gospel against the church. And so Paul, Saul, soon to be Paul, he's leading the way. He's a Pharisee, and he is zealous in his desire to stamp out the church. You can see there what he says about himself later on in the book of Acts after he's converted to Christianity when he's talking about his attitude at this point, both over the death of Stephen and then what he did after. Uh, The word destroy is actually used of what a wild animal does to its prey. It's a vicious word. He's trying to stamp out Christianity. Now, the Christians were meeting together in the temple, but they also met in houses. Remember that? It's like small groups or house churches. And it seems that Paul is going from house to house, breaking up these meetings, bringing people, imprisoning people, leading to their death probably from a trial, something like Stephen's. So that's what's going on. Big shift. The church goes underground. Prior to this, The church has been highly regarded, again, even by people who were not a part of it. Everything they did, they did publicly in the temple courts. So every day they were there meeting. The the apostles were preaching publicly. They were still participating in the life of Judaism. After Acts 8, you don't see that anymore. You don't see any gatherings of thousands. The church in Jerusalem goes underground. Many of them leave the city. The 12 apostles stay. I'm sure there were some others who stayed as well. But many believers left the city, and the church in Jerusalem goes underground at that point. Verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip, if you may remember Philip from a couple of weeks ago, he was one of the seven guys who was picked to take care of the Greek widows. So he was just like Stephen. He was someone who was picked to take care of the Greek widows because they were being overlooked. So he he was Greek as well. Um, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. So what I want you to see there is we have this persecution. In my theology, God does not cause bad things. For some people, God causes everything, and that's fine. You can believe that for sure. In my theology, God doesn't cause bad things, but bad things still happen, and God redeems them. God uses them, but I don't don't necessarily believe that he's the author of 
those evil things. So I don't think God orchestrated the persecution. I think that was Satan. I think Satan saw an opportunity to stamp out Christianity. Up to this point, it was difficult because all of the people were uh, respected what the apostles were doing. As public opinion began to turn, I think the enemy saw an opportunity to stamp out this gospel message, and he sick Paul on them. And so he goes around, and he's trying to kill, he's trying to destroy the church. In verse 9, or chapter 9, when we get there, it says he's breathing murderous threats against the church. I mean, there's a deep-seated hatred that he has for the gospel and for Christians at this point, and he's fanatical in his desire to stamp it out. And I think all of that is inspired by the enemy. I don't think God is doing that at all. I think God absolutely can and does use those things, but I don't think he's the cause of them. But again, some people's theology is different, and that's okay. So in my mind, what I'm looking at is, how does God use this persecution? And you can see he does pretty very quickly. The word scattered comes from the word for seed, and we'll notice as we go through the next five or six chapters, the gospel is being planted everywhere these people go. Up until chapter 8, the, the church has been only in Jerusalem, it's been only Jewish, and it's been led by the 12 apostles. They're the only ones who seem to be, they're the, they're the spokesmen. And what you'll see beginning in chapter 8 is the church is no longer confined to Jerusalem, it's no longer restricted to Jews, and a lot more people are, are leading. It's not just the 12 apostles anymore. What God has done is he's taken this great thing that's been going on for several years, and he's scattering it all around the world. Remember Acts 1.8, you'll be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, we've seen that, then in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. What do we read in Acts 8.1? Everyone except the apostles was scattered throughout where? Judea and Samaria. Acts 8.1 is a fulfillment of Acts 1.8. This idea that God uses the persecution, which I don't think he caused, but he uses this persecution to accomplish his purposes, to get the word out, to scatter the church, to move into the next phase of expansion to Judea and Samaria. He takes a bad thing and he makes a good thing out of it. He takes a bad thing and he redeems it for his own purposes to accomplish his will. All along, he wants the gospel. We've seen it from the beginning of Acts. He wants the gospel to the nations and he takes advantage of this persecution to do that, to break up the centralized structure in, Jer in Jerusalem, to break up the ethnic kind of ghetto of only Jews, and also to distribute leadership away from just the 12 apostles. He does all of that through this persecution. You can pretty easily think of an application for your own life. Every one of you has, is, will experience difficulty. We, we all do. There's going to be bad that happens to you. And I don't know why. And I don't know that it does any good to try to figure out why. We live in a fallen world. We sin. Other people sin. We have an enemy. Pick, pick one. It doesn't matter. Just pull one out of your pocket and say that's the reason why. It doesn't matter. I don't think. It doesn't help you. I don't think. To try to, to, to narrow down or try to tease out why is this happening to me. I think much better... To say, God, how do you want to use this thing that's happening to me? That to me is a much, it's, it's a, not just a healthier approach. I think it's, a, it's, it's long term. It's just better for you long term. What, it, what you're doing is you're giving God opportunity to use everything in your life, even the things that, in my opinion, he doesn't necessarily 
cause. I think you can do that in two ways. Two questions that you can ask yourself when something bad happens. Evil, wicked, unfortunate, whatever words you want to use. Something not pleasant happens to you. Two things that you can ask. One, God, how do you want to use this to my good? You know that verse up there, Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things God works together for what? The good of those who love him. That's you who've been called according to his purpose. That's you also. That's what, that's how, that's what God does. Even things that he doesn't cause, in my opinion, even things he doesn't cause, he works together for your good. So when something happens, we'll just call it a difficulty, and you can kind of break off of that whatever you want. When, a difficult, when you experience difficulty, the first question I say is, God, how do you want to use this to make me more like Jesus? It may be unfortunate, but it seems to be true that our character is refined more in suffering than when things are going along swimmingly. That just seems to be the case. You may disagree, but that seems to be the case, that we grow more through difficult circumstances than we do through pleasant ones. And so, God, this is, I don't enjoy this, so I might as well get something out of it. If I'm in the pain, I might as well get something out of it. How do you want to use this to make me more like Jesus? Second thing, how do you want to use this to further me in your calling of my life? How do you want to use this to move me forward into the things that you have for me? You can read through the heroes of the faith in the Old Testament, and you see this time and time again. Think about Joseph. He has a dream when he's a teenager of all of his family bowing down before him. He was silly and told his brothers about that. He's the youngest. You don't tell your older brother that he's going to be bowing down to you at some point. Recipe for disaster. His brothers went overboard. They sell him into slavery instead of just beating on him. They sell him into slavery. And then he's, he's lost for uh, years He's in a foreign country. He's working in this house. He's falsely accused of sexual assault from the, 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 the woman of the house. He's thrown in jail. And then he's forgotten about for years in jail until Pharaoh has a dream. And somebody says, oh, yeah, there's a guy in your prison, and he can interpret that dream. And he does, and Pharaoh elevates Joseph to second in command of all of Egypt, the superpower of its day. And he says, Joseph says, the reason this happened was so I could save my family, the 75 people in my family. That's God working, and you can see in Joseph's life. How do you go from a teenage shepherd in Israel to second in command in Egypt? You can't apply for this job. Like, there's no, there's no way to get from here to here. You've got to get into the country, and then somehow Pharaoh has to notice you. Not an easy road. It looks circuitous to us, straight line. For God, think about David, again, as a teenager, anointed to be the king. And then he spends ten years on the run from Saul, who literally is crazy, and tries to kill him multiple times. He's living in caves. He's got a bunch of ragged, indebted, disgruntled men following him around. He's learning how to be, go from being a shepherd of sheep to a leader of this small group to eventually be king of a nation. God is working in David's character and giving him skills that he needs for his future calling, both with Joseph, with David, and you can see it with just about every hero of the faith in the Old Testament. God uses difficulty to accomplish his purposes in their lives. And I don't necessarily believe God causes any of those things. Again, I think he just takes advantage of the circumstances. You know, again, we have this is the theme verse from camp. We have an enemy who tries to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus came, comes that we ha would have abundant life. And I think what God often does 
is the ways the enemy tries to steal and kill and destroy. God uses those very means to grow us more into the image of his son and to move us forward into our calling and our destiny. So if you're in a period of difficulty, question one, God, how do you want to use this for my good? Question two, God, how do you want to use this for your glory? There's a quote up there from Joseph from Genesis. He's saying to his brothers, y'all were trying to destroy me. God used it for my good. God intended this. This is part of God's plan. He wants to save all 75 members of this household. And he could see there's going to be a famine. And so let's get to Egypt. And we need someone in charge of Egypt to make sure that these 75 people can have food. And so it's Joseph. That's the plan. And so everything that looks negative for him over the course of, I think it's about 17 years, God is actually using to accomplish his purposes in the world not just in Joseph's life, in the world. We're still reaping the benefits of Joseph's difficulty and his faithfulness in the midst of that. And so for you, God, how do you want to use this for your glory? How do you want to use this difficulty to spread the gospel? That's what we see here. Persecution, boom, gospel goes out. It's not what Satan intended. He was trying to stamp the thing out, and the opposite happened. The gospel exploded, and you'll see that as we go through Acts. It opens the floodgates for the gospel to be uh, transmitted throughout the entire world. God, how do you want to use this to spread the gospel? How do you want to use this so that more people, so that you get more famous, so that more people know who you are? How do you want to use this to expand your kingdom? All of those things point to the glory of God. If you're in a difficult situation, if you've experienced something negative, God, how do you want to use this for my good? How do you want to use this? For your glory. Second thing I was seeing there, we don't pick up on this because we're so far removed from these guys. There is a massive amount of animosity between Jews and Samaritans. For hundreds of years, there's been zero contact. They hate each other. The Samaritans originally, their roots, if you trace them all the way back, were originally Jews. If you remember, there are 12 tribes of Israel, and under David and Solomon, all 12 tribes have one king, David. And then Solomon. After Solomon, those 12 break, 10 and 2. Ten northern tribes, two southern ones, Judah and Benjamin. And they have two different kings, and they have two different places where they worship. They're, they're completely separate political entities at that point. The northern ten tribes goes down the hill quick. Like, they're terrible. They never have a good king. They're terrible from day one. They start worshiping golden calves, and it never gets better from there. Southern kingdom, there's sporadic. Good kings and bad kings, they last a lot longer. In 722, God's so f- BC, God is so fed up with the northern ten tribes, he said, we're done. And he sends in an army, an Assyrian army, and they wipes them out. And the Assyrians leave a handful of Jews in these, this area, this geographic area, and they also import a whole bunch of pagans. And over the course of decades and centuries, there's a whole bunch of intermarriage between this handful of Jews and these pagans. And the result is Samaritans. When you get all the way down to where we are in the New Testament, that's what you get. You've got Samaritans who see themselves as the people of God. They believe in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They believe a Messiah is coming because Moses says in Deuteronomy 18, God's going to send a prophet for you like me. Listen to him. They circumcise their kids. They built a temple, not in Jerusalem, on Mount Gerizim. They, they feel like they're, they're it. They're the people of God. When the Jews look at them, they see them as mutts, half-breeds. They're not Jew. They're not Gentile. 
and heretics. They don't worship at the temple. They don't sacrifice at the temple. There's nothing good about them. No interaction. Much animosity. You can read John 4 where Jesus has an exchange with a Samaritan woman. And the first thing she says is, why are you talking to me? Your kind doesn't talk to my kind. Why are you talking to me? What we see here in Acts is the gospel breaks down barriers. Philip, as a Jew, goes to Samaria. He shouldn't be there as a Jew. And he preaches the gospel, and he doesn't make Samaritans become Jews. He's, the gospel for him, he's, when he sees these Samaritans, he's not looking at them as a Jewish Christian. He's looking at them as a Christian who is Jewish. And that changes everything. What's primary for him? What's primary for him is the gospel. What's primary for him is his identity as a follower of Jesus, not his ethnicity as a Jew. That's secondary. And so he's able to see these Samaritans as loved by God, as people who also need the gospel. And he clears away any hurdles that they may have to jump. They don't have to become Jews first. They don't have to come to Jerusalem. They can receive and respond there. Again, not maybe not revolutionary from where we're sitting, earth-shattering at the time. And this guy wasn't one of the apostles. He's just a regular guy. Took care of widows. But the gospel, he has so understood the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do that he breaks down, breaks through this racial barrier. I was at camp this week, so I, I, I had to catch up on the news. It was a bad week in a lot of ways. We've talked before about one of the primary issues in our city are these divides that we have, this relationally, racial, economic, socially, the old Marietta, not old Marietta thing. Those are real divisions, and we have a role to play as the church in seeing those things broken down. You see here the gospel breaks through centuries of ethnic and religious hatred. The gospel can do the same thing here in Marietta and Cobb County. You can see the demographics there on the screen just in case you're not aware. Marietta, there's more people who aren't white than who are white in the 60,000 people who live in this city. Cobb County is a bit more white, but it's still there are a whole lot of people who aren't white who live in our city. And the, those divides are real. Those racial divides are real. I don't have any idea what it's like to be a policeman. I've never had to wear a bulletproof vest to work. I've never had to approach a car and wonder what's going to happen. Somebody going to pull a gun on me? I've never had to worry about me having a bad day at work, winding up on the front page of the paper, whatever a bad day looks like. I, I don't live in that world. I also don't know what it's like to be a black man. I've been pulled over three times in my life for a legal lane change, for speeding, and for a, a legal U-turn. I didn't get a ticket for the U-turn, I think, because I was headed to church. I was running late. I was speaking at a church, and I got lost, and it was 10 till 9. And I said, I don't, you can give me a ticket. You just got to tell me where the church is because i got to be there in 10 minutes. So anyway, Jesus. So anyway, I got out of the thing. <laughs> you can try it sometime. It just needs to be Sunday early. Some of you, many, actually, y'all could probably use it every week. I'm late. Church started at 11. It's always 11.15. So anyway, I, I didn't... I actually, when I got pulled over the last time, I was, it was a few years ago, I actually got out of the car and approached a police car. You're not supposed to do that. I didn't know. But you can't, I mean, imagine, again, all the things that are swirling if a black man got out of the police car, uh, got out of his car. I mean, it's, it, there's so much tension 
I'm not, as Christians, we don't have to take sides. Joshua, what do we, what do we, he's praying before he enters a promised land and the commander of the Lord's army appears as angel and Joshua says, are you for us or for our enemies? And he says, neither. These officers, do I choose black, the black community? We don't choose. We don't take sides. We side with God who loves everyone. But I recognize, all right, what is it? I don't know what it's like to be black in our city. And there are significant racial divides. There was a protest here on Friday night when we drove through. People are, there continues to be unrest in the black community over the thing with Nick Thomas. And that was over a year ago where they feel like there wasn't, justice wasn't served there where that guy was killed by a police officer when he was trying to serve a warrant. And there's, and I don't know, I don't know about any of those things, what's right and what's wrong. All I know is as a Christian, I have a responsibility. God wants to break down walls in our city. He does want to break down walls between old Marietta and the rest of us. He does want to break down walls between rich and poor. And he absolutely wants to break down those walls that we saw there between white and black and Hispanic, the three major groups in our city. And so where it gets down to me, it's not, the question is not, do you have a black friend? The question is not, are you a racist? I'm not an adulterer and I'm not an alcoholic and I'm not a thief, but I could be every one of those things tomorrow. The propensity for every sin lies within my fallen nature. So that's not the issue. The issue is, am I a Christian first? Or am I white first? Am I a Christian first? Or am I an American first? Am I an American Christian? Or am I a Christian who's an American? Am I a white Christian? Or am I a Christian who's white? Am I a rich Christian? Or am I a, am I a Christian who's rich? Am I a Christian businessman? Or am I a businessman who's a Christian? How does that work? Anything that competes with Jesus for primary loyalty and identity in your life can get you into trouble. And I don't want that to happen for you. It's a matter of what comes first and what comes second. At some point, there's, there's a lot of ways that my whiteness does not impact my Christianity. doesn't impact me in terms of I pray, I worship, I come to church, I serve, I can go overseas. But at some point, it may. And I've got a decision to make. What wins, my whiteness or my Christ-likeness? Which one of those two gets to lead? I don't have a recipe for what we need to do. We're not community organizing. This is not political. It's none of those things. It's just me saying as a, as a almost exclusively, as I look around, white church, I think, we're, I think we have one black person at nine, and we have less than that here, it looks like, if I'm scanning the room correctly. One! Junior's not white. Fiji! We got that going for us. So what do we do as an almost exclusively white slash island church? What do we, what's our response? How do we do that? What's my responsibility personally to say I'm a Christian before I'm anything else? So is there a way for me to somehow empathize with people who think, man, I got pulled over. Am I going to get shot? Is there a way for me to, to step in and facilitate relationship? Is there a way for me to begin to say there's, there's decades, if not centuries, of distrust and hostility and animosity and miscommunication and wrongs and sin and all of that swirling 
as a Christian, what's my role in stepping into that and saying God fixes everything? He can fix this. I don't know what the answer is. I'm looking over here at the students, and many of them go to public school, and that's in Marietta, that's where you see the mix more than anywhere else. Marietta Sixth Grade Academy, Marietta Junior High, Marietta High School. That's where you see the mix more than any other place in our city. I'm not exactly sure in Cobb County where you see the mix. But what does it look like for us to say, Jesus tore down walls. We know that. Ephesians 2, he broke down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. We see here the gospel tears down a wall that had been erected along racial lines for hundreds of years. It just took one dude, one fella, Philip, not even an apostle, just going. And going because he was through bad things, persecution. It was even through a, a negative that got him there. But when he got there, he looked at these people and the opportunity through the eyes of the gospel, not through the eyes of his Jewishness. And it changed everything. Let's pray. So two really different things we talked about. One very, very personal. The other, this kind of structural community deal. And so we'll just deal with both. We'll have ministry teams here up in the front. We want to pray with you about anything. I do want, if you're experiencing something that you would consider a difficulty, maybe you would say it's even evil, it's bad, it's hard. We want to pray with you, and we're going to pray three things for you. First, we're going to pray for God to change your circumstances. Second, we're going to say, God, how do you want to use this to help this for the good, of, for your good, for the good of the people who come forward? And third, God, how do you want to use this for your glory? So that's what we'll pray when you come forward. We won't try to fix anything. Nobody's going to try to counsel you out or through anything. We're just going to pray for God to change your circumstances as soon as he will. We're going to, and we're also going to pray for you to get every single bit of lemonade out of the lemons that are in your life right now. That God would, for your good and his glory, work through those circumstances. Some of you, this whole racial thing, it's, it's been a burden for you, and you just need an outlet. So we want you to pray. You absolutely can do that in your seat, but you can come forward and let these guys pray with you. Some of us may need to repent because we've put something in front of our Christ-likeness. We have an adjective in front of Christian. We need to remove the adjective so we can be Christian first and all those other things after. Again, the goal is not to become who you aren't in terms of, like, I'm white, I'm never going to be able to understand what it's like to be a black man. That's not the goal. The goal is for me to approach life as a Christian first. That's what discipleship is. It's prioritizing Jesus and his way of looking at things. So you may need to repent. You may just need to say, God, what's my, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? I'm scared or I'm honestly, I'm apathetic or whatever you are. God, what do you want? There are walls in our city. How do you want to use me to begin to tear those walls down? So, God, I pray. God, I, I want to pray for us. I pray for those who are struggling personally today. They've been through it. They're going through it. Their circumstances are just not great. I pray you would meet them here this morning. 
you provide hope, encouragement, clarity. God, I pray that you would redeem every tear that's been shed, that you would redeem every ounce of pain that they've experienced, that you would redeem every sleepless night, every difficult conversation, every frustration, every confusion, every disappointment. God, would you redeem all of those things? Would you take those isolated incidents and and would you show us the kind of the mosaic, the bigger picture of what you're doing? Would you do that? Would you give us grace in these next couple of minutes to zoom out from our circumstances and to look at things from your perspective? And God, we do want to pray for our city and for our county. God, we pray for those who, we pray for the police, for the law enforcement officers who protect us and serve and they step in when most of us run away. And God, we pray that your hand would be upon them and their families. That your peace would fill their hearts. That they wouldn't give in to fear. And God, we pray as a church, what's our role in tearing down walls? They've been erected over decades and in some cases longer. And you can tear them down over time or in an instant. And God, you you work through your people. And so as a group of almost exclusively white people, we're saying, we're here. We're here. We'll pray. We'll reach out. We'll develop relationship. What do you want? We'll step in. We want to see the walls in our city come down. Not so we can all hold hands and sing a song, but because you're our father. And you're the father of each one of these churches in our city and in our county. Black churches, Hispanic churches, Asian churches, white churches. We're all saying our father, which makes us all brothers and sisters. So would you connect us together as brothers and sisters, and then would you begin to work in our city so that you're glorified. In your name we pray. Amen. You guys can come forward however you want, or you can stay in your seat if you want to pray there, and Bo will dismiss us after this song.